Okay, so today, a survey, a rapid survey, a flyby of the Byzantine Empire. And the reason I say flyby is because some, one way of measuring the Byzantine Empire is it begins in 330 with what event? What event begins the Byzantine Empire? The founding of Constantinople on the former Byzantium. Uh, and it lasts until 1453. So by that count, it's older than Rome. It's older than the Roman Empire, Roman Republic. All right? Now, you could argue that it's maybe not quite as significant, uh, but I would say it's, it's pretty significant, uh, and we don't really need to get into debating how significant it is compared to Rome. Remember that the inhabitants of the Byzantine Empire, so the Byzantine, that word, is a later term coined by Western scholars uh, to just refer to the empire founded in Constantinople, the former, uh, the former Byzantium. So it's a, it's a Western, it's a term from the West. Remember, they would have called themselves what? Romans. Romans. And I am told that some inhabitants of Istanbul still call themselves Romans. Okay, so this is a long line of cultural descent. Um, okay, maybe the most important thing to know about the Byzantine Empire is that they preserved the literature and culture of the Greeks. All right, and there's an obvious reason for this. Why did they preserve this? Why is it that they are when, when Aristotle was lost for hundreds of years in the West, when even if they had Aristotle, there wouldn't have been many people who could read it, everybody in the Byzantine Empire could read Aristotle. Anybody know? Think about it. What is the obvious reason why they could still read Aristotle? What? No, because they knew Greek. Okay. So Plato, Aristotle, many of the works of Greek antiquity, they're the bestsellers of the Byzantine Empire. Does everybody know what I'm saying? They're the, they're the books that their, their education continues to be based on for hundreds of years. They don't have a period of time when the literature of Greek antiquity fell off the map because they continued to speak Greek and continued to learn those manuscripts. All right? So knowledge of Greek, knowledge of Greek civilization continued and they are the incubators and the preservers of Greek culture uh, for the West. Okay? So in 1453, when it finally collapses, for a couple of centuries, scholars from Byzantium, or from the Byzantine Empire, have been going westward, fleeing from Muslim empires, and bringing their learning westward. It is scholars from the Byzantine Empire that taught Westerners how to read the Bible in Greek. Okay? So it is the Byzantine Empire that preserved all this. So they remained highly educated, and one of my favorite ways of illustrating this, they, they remained highly educated and highly cultured through their entire history. My favorite way of illustrating this is they would have riots over abstruse theological debate points. Okay? They, I mean, the city could be in an uproar. Your shopkeeper could have one opinion on a very intense theological point, and, you know, your bread baker could have a different opinion. And there, there'd be, you know, your, your average merchant in Constantinople was highly literate and highly involved in these debates. It also was cosmopolitan. 
What does that mean? I'll give you a hint. Tokyo, LA, New York. Mainly one. Mm, no. Big city. What, what kind of big city? Tokyo, Liberal. LA, New York. Famous. Yes. <coughs> Trade centers. Mm -hmm. Trade centers are cosmopolitan. That tends to mean there's tons of different cultures mingling there. Mm -hmm. Okay? So New York City, because it's an immigration point and a trade point, has cuisines from all over the world, languages from all over the world. That's what cosmopolitan means, kind of a one city that's a melting pot. So they were a very important trade route. Remember, they're on what is called the Golden Horn. <clears throat> they're jutting out into the Bosporus. Up here is the Black Sea. So they wound up being this kind of like the Gibraltar of the Mediterranean, or the Aegean between the Black Sea and the Aegean, right? They're a major trade center. So their food... Um, has this cosmopolitan uh, element. <clears throat> they have influence from all over the world. Okay. Um, they have some of the greatest works of culture. Um, one of the most important that I'm going to have you all watch a few, uh, a con video or two, um, is the Hagia Sophia. And maybe you all remember this from co-op. Yeah. The church known as Hagia Sophia which means, does anybody know what that means? Hagia Sophia. Hagia Sophia. Hagia Sophia. Anybody know what it means? It means uh, holy wisdom. Okay, the Church of Holy Wisdom. It was, when it was built, <laughs> the highest dome in the world, in a church. Um, it reminds me of Naboo. In fact, I'm totally... There's no, there's no question that Star Wars people, when they made those, that prequel, based Naboo on the Hagia Sophia. Who's Naboo? Naboo is the planet where Jar Jar Binks is from. Curse him. Okay. So this is the Hagia Sophia. Now there's one feature of the Hagia Sophia. There's the central dome. There's one feature of the Hagia Sophia that's Muslim. Does anybody know what it is? What? Not the dome. The dome is the, the dome is original. Those towers are called minarets. Does anybody know what a minaret is? People would call out the hours for prayer. Right? Yes. Okay. So the minarets were a later addition by the Ottomans. But the Hagia Sophia. Let me get a little bit uh, better picture. Yeah, this is a great picture. Well, it wasn't every single hour. It was the hours of prayer, and there were uh, five, remember? Um, let me see. Here's a decent picture. I don't know if you can quite get a sense of the, um, of how high it is. This is Arabic. That's Arabic. They're covering up Christian iconography because, uh, again, it became a mosque after the Ottoman Turks took over. How did they build it? How did they build it? Um, I don't know the details of that, but it was definitely the grandest, highest dome uh, in the world at the time. 
Um, it is, oh, by the way, here you see, and actually they've defaced it, but can anybody see this little guy there? Anybody know what that was? No, it's it's not in a central position. So what might it be if it's not in a central position? An angel, but a particular kind of angel. Let me show you what it's. They you can tell that they've marked it out. Um, but I think these are cool. Um, here's an example. Well, these are various examples, but maybe this is the one that's closest to it. Okay, they had six pair, or three pair of wings, right? Covering their feet, flying. And in one one of the prophetic books, covering their face. Okay. Okay. So it's a cultural center as well, and they were pretty wealthy for a long time. I mean, they were a large functioning empire. Okay. They remained through much of the early Middle Ages far more literate than Europe, far more educated than Europe, far more urban than Europe. Constantinople was a huge city. No, no cities in Europe were much larger than 1,000 for a long time. And they remained, they continued having, as I said, uh, classical education and high levels of learning. Okay, so <clears throat> by the year 450, few in the former Roman Empire, when you consider all of Roman territories, okay, all the way into Persia, all the way into England, by 450, few were bilingual anymore, meaning few knew both Greek and Latin. All right, And Greek was the first, we've already used this expression, lingua franca. Have we used that expression? So Greek was the first lingua franca of the uh, Hellenistic world. All right, And then along comes Latin, and it's more the administrative and political language. So by 450, most folks in the West are speaking Latin, and most folk, folks uh, in the East, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, are speaking Greek. All right? Um, and this is eventually one of the things that's going to lead to the split between the East and the West, particularly in the church. Um, these different languages meant to, led to miscommunication. It's harder to communicate. We don't they, don't they don't have Google Translate back then. You know, there's a lot. There's larger linguistic barriers between the two. They have drifts in theology. Probably the most important drift in theology that we should talk about is um, the filioque clause. Now you know that this is Latin, so that should lead you to deduce that filioque, the filioque clause, was added by the Western Church, all right? So what does filioque mean? What does que on the end of a word make it? So this means and the sun. And it's in the Nicene Creed, and it's in the article about the Holy Spirit. And so what the Western Church did 
is they added to the creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, filioque. Okay? He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, you think, what's the big deal? Okay? In theology at the time, everything was a big deal. And the biggest deal was, though, where did the Nicene Creed come from? It came from a worldwide council, yes? It came from a huge gathering of all the bishops who could come, large gathering. There were seven councils like this. But the Western Church changed the creed, changed the, the faith, without consulting the Eastern Church. Okay? So just so you know, this continues to be a point of contention between Catholics and Orthodox today. Okay? If you go to an Orthodox church, they won't say the filioque clause. There's been a couple of moments where this continues to come up. Pope Francis recently celebrated a mass in which he recited the creed without the filioque clause. And everybody was, their brains were short-circuiting because they're like, oh, he's getting ready to reunite with the Orthodox church. All right? That didn't happen, but it seemed to be a gesture. Okay? Sort of saying, hey, I'm willing to dialogue about this thing. But at any rate, the Eastern Church, it just drove them mad that they did this. Is it, is it just because they... Like they it's not just that. Them? It's also there's theology behind it. Okay, that... that and, and, I mean, we can, we can discuss it a little bit, but it was a theological problem they had, too. And you can... In Scripture, you can say both, that the Father sends the Spirit, but the Son sends the Spirit, too. Um, so, I, you know, it, it's both. But a large part was that they decided to change. It would be like changing the Constitution. You know, like, I don't know, California changing the Constitution without... That's not exactly the same. It's an analogy. But you get the idea, all right? This was seen as presumptuous. It was seen as... who are, you know, And also, this is at a time when the, Eastern, or the Western Church is seen as... There's a lot of Arians out there, so they're heretical, right? Uh, they're not educated, and they're not, um, they don't have Greek. All right? So there's a lot of reasons why the Eastern Church was like, this is, this is insane. You can't do this. Um, so the other thing to add is that in the East, the church developed a different ecclesiology. And what I mean by that is there is no pope. Okay? So the West develops this particular view of leadership that... The Pope is the inheritor of Peter's position. And that when Jesus says, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church, he was establishing an office that would pass down from one to the other. That is a uniquely Western Catholic view of church leadership. In the East, they led, we can say it this way, collegially. Meaning there were many bishops, and they led as a circle of brothers. Maybe some bishop is more preeminent than others, but there's no pope, okay, per se. And as time goes by, the, to them, bishop of Rome begins to assert himself more and more um, dictatorially, tyrannically, presumptuously, and that also adds to the tensions east and west, Okay. Another difference East and West is the use of icons. Now, the Catholic Church in the West has icons. They tend to have statues more, right? They tend to have statuary in the churches. In the East, they develop a tradition in which they exclusively use icons. 
And icons are theological paintings that are specifically not meant to be realistic. Okay, they're not, it, when you look at an icon, um, when you look at an icon, a lot of the times you think, oh, wow, they weren't very good artists. They, they, uh, they can't paint realistically. They weren't trying to paint <coughs> realistically. Um, let me show you one of the more famous icons. Oh, yeah, we have some in our house. So this one in particular will illustrate my point. It's actually a little more realistic. However, um, let's see. This is actually a really old image. I want a better view of it. Okay. Uh, <coughs> well, I've done something to it. All right, I didn't. So, what do you notice about this? So, this one is actually a little more realistic. Yes, I mean it looks like a Middle Eastern man, but what's? Do you notice anything about it? It's a little, maybe off. You notice the asymmetry. The eye. You notice how the two sides of the face are very different? Okay, almost looks like he has a stroke. This is actually deliberate. Um, also, what do you notice about the painting? Just other observations about painting. It has like, the halo, yeah, the mandala. It's called a mandala or a halo. That's very common. Um, he's looking at you. In fact, there's no perspective in icons because the point of perspective is you. Okay, most icons, the um, the person depicted is looking at you. I want a better there. A better view. Okay. So it's an asymmetrical face. The point of this asymmetrical face is. <clears throat> One side is human, and one side is divine. Okay, it's, it's visually depicting the two natures. So it wasn't meant to be photorealistic, it was meant to be theologically realistic. Okay, a lot of icons have, um, let me give some other examples. By the way, he's blessing with one, two, three fingers together. What's that symbolize? And two fingers together. What's that symbolize? The two natures of Christ. Okay, he's fully human and fully divine. Um, that icon, by the way, the one I just showed you, is in. It's at Mount Sinai, at a monastery there. Um, let me show you some other icons. Here's another one similar. Keep doing that. Well, okay. Similar. Okay, same blessing. Actually, English on the open scriptures. Oh, yeah, I'll do that one. Yeah, well, that's very common. Um, up here, you see the IC, the ICXC. 
That's actually the first and last letter of Jesus, Jesus, in Greek, and the first and last letter of Christos, Christ, in Greek. All right, he's got the, the, uh, the mandala or the, the halo around him. Uh, he's got a prominent forehead. Yes, it symbolizes wisdom. He's looking at you, which represents this sort of uh, confrontation with the viewer. So at any rate, if you go to an Orthodox church, there's an iconostasis. There's a division between the congregation and where communion is kept. And it's a wall of icons. And the point is, it's the heavenly host looking at you, addressing you, calling you, right? So at any rate, there's a distinctive Eastern theology, <clears throat> distinctive religious art, distinctive ecclesiology uh, that all develops and really, it all develops largely centered around Constantinople, which is one of the most important um, sees or centers of the bishop. So in 1054, this is one of your dates, this was the split between Rome and the Eastern Church, or the bishops from the East. They formally excommunicated one another. Um, a lot of it had to do with theology. A lot of it had to do with bad diplomacy. A lot of it had to do with um, long misunderstanding. And then in 1204, the Fourth Crusade stopped in Constantinople and sacked the city. Okay, so let me, let me reframe this for you. Western Christian armies descended upon the center of uh, the Byzantine Empire on their way to Jerusalem to try to retake Jerusalem from the Muslims, and they sacked the city. All right? Most historians agree that that was the blow that eventually made the Byzantine Empire totally collapse, okay, when they sacked the city. This is still celebrated as a, a lament in Orthodox churches. Like every year they celebrate the day on which Constantinople was sacked. So you can see why there's another, there's another rift between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Does that make sense? There's, there's that that's, you know, they still resent that. So Constantinople itself never recovered to its former grandeur after that. All right, we need to talk about one of the most, the most important um, Byzantine emperor, Justinian I, and his wife, Theodora. Theodora uh, is probably one of the most formidable women of history. It was rumored that she was a, either a prostitute or a performer in an orchestra, needless to say, kind of a lower-class, unworthy woman. Uh, but she eventually married uh, Justinian I. And uh, she, you know, there's lots of stories about the cities being sacked and he wants to run away. And she's like, you get back in there and, you know, hold, you know she held things together, apparently. Okay, a couple things that happened under Justinian that you need to know about. First, reconquest. He retook much of lost territory of the former Roman Empire um, under one of his most important generals. So he achieved uh, territorial gains during his reign. Probably the most lasting thing that happened during his reign is a reformation of Roman law, <clears throat> sometimes called... Uh, Justinian's law code. Basically what he did was, why this is important is, 
there were various laws all over the empire for various things. Some laws redundant, some contradictory. Hundreds, thousands of laws from all over Rome, from all over the former empire. He and his scholars, well, he his scholars, but he supervised it or uh, promoted it, sponsored it, collated and systematized and organized all that law. This became the basis of Western law. Lawyers still study it today. Okay, it's one of the most important bodies of law uh, in history because it's a vast study of all the existent laws at the time and a sort of a systematizing of all those laws. Uh, it became the foundation of all European law codes except the English law code. Justinian is also famous for the Hagia Sophia. Okay, for the, the building of the Hagia Sophia. Um, <clears throat> so he's famous for those three things, reconquest, his law code, and the Hagia Sophia. Um, some negative things about him. He overstrained the finances. Wars will do that. Buildings will do that. And projects where you have thousands of scholars working on law will do that. Um, he's also, this is an unfortunate side effect, he, uh, he persecuted non-Christians or non-Orthodox groups. All right? And this is something that the Eastern Church did at times. I think this is sort of one of the problems with the state and the church being together as they were in the Byzantine Empire, is they tended to use the arm of the state to persecute um, non-Orthodox groups. So they would, uh, they would torture and imprison various uh, Christian groups who weren't in, inside the Orthodox system. Um, most famously, the Monophysites, which the Monophysites were Christians who said Jesus doesn't have two natures but one divine nature. Okay? Um, again, it's a theological debate, but they persecuted people that, um, that believed in it. Um, and during Justinian's reign, the beginnings of what would eventually shrink the empire, Muslim, Muslim conquest on, in the Holy Land began. All right? uh, so by 732, Muslims hold most of what is the traditional land of the scriptures. All right? And that's an ominous threat on the horizon. Um, so that's another thing they wind up doing for the West. The West, when the West is sort of small, uneducated, not developed economically, the Byzantine Empire provided a buffer for them. If the Byzantine Empire hadn't been there or collapsed, Muslims probably would have taken over Europe and you and I would be Muslim today. All right? And, and I mean, this is probable, okay? Because they were just sweeping through the world. So this wound up being a, a defense, a, a buffer zone against Muslim expansion. Yes? Yep. Okay. But as I said, uh, they reach their sort of pinnacle during Justinian's reign. They're not able to maintain that reign. Uh, they're not able to maintain that size. Um, and it is the Ottoman Turks who eventually will do them in. For the longest time, the Byzantine Empire was reduced to more or less the Golden Horn, more or less the city of, uh, of Istanbul itself. The Greeks were famous at the time for a piece of technology, a piece of uh, chemical warfare or weaponry that came to be called Greek fire. So the Golden Horn was surrounded on all sides by sort of 
walls that go down to the ocean, and then they had a real literal wall this way, so it was hard to take them, and they kept being taken by ships at sea, but what the Greek fire was was some kind of liquid they could pump on the water that floated on top of the water and that was flammable. So they could light this stuff and burn, uh, burn the ships or keep the ships at bay. We don't know anymore what that is. We don't have the recipe for it, but it'd be pretty... That would be like a cool... If you were like an historian, archaeologist, like manuscript person and could find the, the recipe for Greek fire, it would be pretty cool. Um, okay, so uh, what else do I want to say? So the, let, me, let me end with this, okay? Um, the Byzantine Empire is where all the ecumenical councils of the church happen. The, the councils that Catholics, Protest, uh, Catholics, Orthodox, and many Protestants adhere to, they all sort of happened in the Byzantine Empire. But when the Byzantine Empire collapsed, Byzantine Christians went into Europe, but a large portion of them went into Russia. Okay, And Russia came to be called for this reason, the Third Rome. Okay, the first Rome is what? Rome. The second Rome is what? Constantinople. The third Rome is Moscow. Okay? It became the place where Orthodox Christianity extended to. All right? And Russia, until the modern era was a Christian or was an orthodox Christian empire okay and a lot uh, of what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is to revive an orthodox Christian empire if you listen to his rhetoric he says that the west is godless and that uh, that is why he's waging this war in Ukraine so he's Set claims to be coming from a Christian perspective. So this issue of the Byzantine Empire, we could say, is still with us in this Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict, because it really is a conflict between the West and Ukraine, who wants to align more with the West, and Russia, which is the heir of this uh, Byzantine Christianity and this Byzantine culture. Um, it was... It was uh, it was inhabitants of the Byzantine Empire who brought Christianity to Russia, gave them their alphabet, right? The Cyrillic alphabet comes from missions to Russia from uh, Byzantine territories. Okay, any questions? All right, we'll see you next week.